Day for some of you parents with little kids. Um, there's great grace if you need to either step out or if your kids need to try to shout over me. I'm cool with that as well. Um, yeah, that, that song is an affront. It's um, to our senses to some degree, right? We sing of the incarnation and we talk about all things being well. But so often when we look at our lives, it's simply not the case. Um, and yet, one of the great themes of Christmas, besides glory, which we looked at last night, is peace. Peace. We, as we have been doing this whole month, we've been looking at the songs of Christmas. The songs in Luke 1 and Luke 2. And we've looked at the Magnificat by Mary, and we've looked at the Benedictus by Zechariah. And this morning and last night, we are looking at what is known as the Gloria, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And there's a second part of that last that line that the angels sing. It's the angel song is what we've been looking at last night and this morning. And it says this in verse 14 of Luke 2, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're going to look at peace this morning, following your own Bibles as I read from Luke chapter 2. I'll read through, beginning in verse 8 through verse 14 and end right there where I just read. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It says the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Hey, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, um, we thank you for this opportunity to come and very specifically have a Lord's Day that is focused on and is so much inherently a part of our celebration of the incarnation of Christ Jesus. And so, gracious God, maybe perhaps, um, maybe none of the things I say this morning are new. Um, we are used to Christmas, and we are used to the talk about peace and glory, and we're used to hearing about angels singing and shepherds and fa-la-la-la. But gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that um, by the gracious goodness of your Holy Spirit, that that which maybe we have heard of ten times, a hundred times in our life, Lord, that you would make it new. For those who've never heard this, though, Lord, I, I pray that, Lord, this would be sweet and fresh, that there would be a story here of peace and the story that you're writing and a future peace that you are going to give to us that would be tantalizing for those that don't know any peace in their life, whether their life is burdened with financial stressors or familial stressors, vocational stress. God, I pray that you would, more than anything else, come and make peace between us and you this morning so that we may have joy in, in you, in your glory, and your grace to us. We ask this in the name of your perfect Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, for the sake of brevity this morning, no introduction, we're going to dive right in. Here's the first thing I want you to look at within our text, and that is simply the shepherd's fear. They were afraid. 
You see it right at the very beginning. It's interesting, last night we talked about the Gloria and the glory of God, and that is where we focused and how great that is to be able to see the glory of God and have the wonder of that and how God is restoring to us the ability to see his beauty and the wonder of his glory and how God's glory is most graciously seen in the incarnation. Actually, his glory is seen in his humiliation. The fact that Jesus would deign to come and take on flesh to enter in and through that, through that, without the shimmering lights and without these in, these. In the imminent displays of his power, we see that God's glory is articulated within the gospel through Jesus' humanity. But what we see here with the shepherds is that they are experiencing fear. And they, why are they afraid? Well, there's a couple reasons why they're, why they're afraid. First is an angel comes and talks to them. This is a common theme whenever angels come and talk to people in the Bible. People get afraid rather rapidly. It's what happens to Mary, it happens throughout the Old Testament, and it happens in the New Testament, is they are scared. Now, one of the most unfortunate aspects of our Western culture and, and, and much of our Western art has been the way in which we have depicted angels. We have depicted them as kind of anemic, frail, wearing nightgowns, chubby, curly-headed babies. That This is how we have depicted angels but that's not at all how they're depicted in the scriptures. And the scriptures, they do sing, and they probably have some pretty good voices, but their other function, besides being messengers, is to be warriors of light. We have various descriptions in the scriptures of, of angels, and we don't know a whole lot about them, but we do see that they're probably something like nine, nine feet tall, they're large and luminous, and they come apparently with a lot of light around them. They are not little quaint baby figures. They are something massive to behold. There's something mighty. And to run into an angel was never something that anybody felt was a very comfortable experience in the scriptures. But more than simply the angel in its own kind of stature, what we see is that with the angel, it says the glory of the Lord shone about them. Now you may recall that when people come into the presence of the glory of God, there's one particular case where Moses in the Old Testament, asked to see God's glory. And he spends time up on the mountain. And God says, listen, if you see my glory, you will die. And so I'm going to put you behind a rock, and I'm going to walk past you. And it's talking in anthropomorphic language. But I'm going, to, I'm going to turn my back to you. I'm going to walk with my, so that you'll see the shadow of me. And simply seeing the shadow and being in the shadow of God's presence, Moses so shone with the glory of God when he went back down the mountain, what was the response of the Israelites? Moses, it wasn't simply that Moses had a really good tan. It was they said, you have to veil your face. You are too beautiful and too glorious for us. And simply by being, spending time in the presence of God's glory in this way made Moses so glorious in his reflection of the glory of God that the other people could not be near it and around it. How much more so do you think it is for angels who spend all their days and all their life in the very presence of God's? They would shine with the glory of God, the reflective glory of God. But this transitions us into the thing that actually brought the greater fear into the shepherds. And that is what we talked about last night, and that is the glory of God itself. If you're reading the whole Bible, it's hard not to notice that when God's glory shows up, people not only do they get a little bit scared, they get scared to death. You may recall a number of places, such as when Isaiah 6, the famous passage where God comes down and he reveals himself and his glory to Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say? He says, I am undone. I will die. 
The same thing that God said to Moses was, if you actually see my glory in all of its fullness, you will die. You cannot be in my presence in this way. And the same thing actually happens at the very beginning of the biblical story. Adam and Eve, what we see is that they are a people, they are walking with God, and everything is wonderful and glorious until they sin, and they're separated from God. And what they're doing in sin is this, is to say that, what God, I'm rejecting your glory, and I'm rejecting your kingship, and I'm going to be king myself. Now, what happens when God comes to the garden when they have decided they want to be rulers of their own life? What do they do? They hide. They can no longer, because they have rejected God's glory and God's kingship, they have to hide themselves from God and his glory. They have been caught. It's interesting. If you were to pose as a policeman, when's the time in which you would be most frightened? When you saw another policeman. If you had counterfeit dollars, the most frightening time would be if someone was comparing your dollars to real dollars. This is what's going on with Adam and Eve from the very beginning is they, have, they are posing as being kings of their own life, and suddenly the glorious, the true king, comes back into the garden, so what do they do? They get really scared. They get really scared, and as they should be. The glory of God is a threatening thing. It's a very threatening thing. Because when you, as a sinner, comes into the presence of the glory of God, we cannot stand. There's this place, in various places it talks about this, that those who are wicked, those who are full of sin, are like chaff. They simply get burned up. And what they get burned up by is the glory of God itself. The glory of God is the beauty of God's reflection of the essence of his character. And that is a wonderful and beautiful and glorious thing, unless you're a sinner, in which case it's a frightening thing. Listen, this is pedantic and rather childish in a teenage illustration. But if you've ever seen a 14-year-old boy suddenly come face-to-face with a beautiful girl, what does he feel like? He feels this big. And every pimple on his face may be this big, but suddenly what does it feel like? This big. Listen, that is a childish illustration for how we feel. Your sin in the face of a perfect being is not just, it no longer appears this big. It suddenly appears as it is, as an affront to something that is perfect. And when you have slandered a perfect being who has infinite depth and wisdom... The guilt and the crushing blow that you feel upon yourself is infinite in its depth as well. The glory of God is a fearful thing. You might as well say that the angels say, fear not, I bring great fear. But this news, what we see instead, it it eliminates fear. The angels are fearful. This news says there is a Savior that has come. Now understand this, even this Savior was fearsome. We, we overlook this. Just as we have kind of badly described angels, we badly describe Jesus. Jesus takes on this depiction of being kind of this wispy character with flowing hair and huge brown eyes that kind of bat themselves at you. But actually what we see in the New Testament, even Jesus, who comes with all his compassion and all of his mercy and all of his gentleness, is people are consistently afraid of him. What happens at Jesus' birth when Herod hears of the one, hears of the prophecies of the Messiah that has come? What does Herod do? He's so afraid. He has all the little boys slaughtered from three and under. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid. What do the disciples do when Jesus stills the waters of the storm? What happens? They were scared to death of the storm, and suddenly, when Jesus stills the storm, suddenly, 
they're still afraid. And in fact, now they're even more afraid. Because now they realize they're in the presence of someone who not only is just a man, but is somebody who can control the winds and the waves. That is a fearsome thing. Jesus is somebody that makes people frightful. There's a great illustration in, what, in one of the books of Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis' great account, in which it's an allegory of the scriptures and the gospel. And the, the character, the main character of his books is a lion. Well, often he's behind the scenes, but there's a one wonderful and incredible line where this, where one of the boys who enters into the Narnia worlds, he's asking another person about the lion when he first sees Aslan, the lion. And he goes, he asks him this, he says, is the lion tame? And the response is what? No, he is not tame, but he is good. When you come into the presence of the glory of God, yes, even Jesus veiled in flesh, even then you realize that this God is not someone I get to control. He's someone who controls me. He is grand and glorious and powerful, and he is frightful in that glory. Well, the angel says, though, what do we do in the face of our fear? The shepherds are afraid. So what is the response? Well, the response is the angels give the same response they almost always give, which is this. Hold your horses. Fear not. I've come with some really good news. Fear not, I have some good news. And so that's the second thing I want you to look at this morning is the angels' news. The angels tell them about a couple things. The good news in the face of their fear of God and in the face of their fear of God's glory is they tell the shepherds what God has provided for them in the face of their fear. And what does God provide? The good news is that God provides us what? What does it say in the song? Glory to God in the highest and what? Peace on earth. If you are fearful of someone and if so, you come into presence of someone who is this powerful, it is good news to know that they come in peace, right? It's what aliens are always saying in the cartoons. They come down with a huge spaceship and a big gun, and the first thing they have to say is, we come in peace. And that's really great that the angels have said this, that Jesus comes with peace. Now, what does it mean for, their, for the good news to be that peace is on earth? Let me answer that question first by saying what it isn't, because we get this confused. And when we get this confused, we actually, we, we, make, we, we state something that is untrue about the gospel. Some people think that the peace that Jesus is immediately bringing in the incarnation is internal peace. Such as, and this is what we often think about in terms of Christmas. That we have this kind of like happy internal feeling with the incarnation. As if all, everything is suddenly with the incarnation, all is well. But we know, right, even the account of the Gospels, not all is well. Because soon after Jesus is born, what does Herod do? He slaughters infants. Not all is well in the world. Not all is well with people internally. They are dismayed. They are struggling. They don't seem to understand what is going on with the birth of Jesus. In Christianity, Christianity does bring internal peace. But it is not the essence of Christianity. It is a consequence of the peace that God gives us but it is not the preeminent peace that God gives us. Paul does say that God provides us a peace that surpasses all understanding, of course. But there is also a tremendous amount of warfare that happens in the Christian life. Some of you have experienced this. Your life was full of peace until you came to know Jesus. Suddenly, now you're in a war. Suddenly, all those things that you used to think were, had, were not a problem at all, suddenly you're going, oh my goodness, that's a problem in my life, and I have to try to put that to bed, and you can't do it. There's a war going on internally. Actually coming to know Jesus may not bring you internal peace, a sanguineness within your heart and your soul immediately. Actually, what it may do is introduce war at first, 
The second thing the peace on earth is not is it's not international peace. It's not political peace. This is not some sentimental peace like that, you know, the, the pageant girl asked for. This is not peace on earth is what she longs for the most. That's not necessarily what Jesus immediately brings. In fact, he states that this, is, this will not be the case. He says, all the way up until his second coming, there will be wars and rumors of wars to think that the incarnation will immediately bring an end to all wars in this world is an inappropriate thought. And to proclaim Christianity as being the end of all wars is to communicate a lie. Now listen, there is one day Jesus is going to bring a peace that is going to end all things. But we see in Revelations, in Revelations he is going to make all things new. There will be no crying or tears. But right now we live in between the first advent and the second advent. That is important to understand. Now I'm going to give you a 50 cent theological word. Too often, when we long for and we make the incarnation entirely about us having internal peace or the incarnation entirely being about international or political peace, we, what we have there and what we believe, what that is, is an over-realized eschatology. I know, that was a... I, I was a thank you, Ed. <laughs> All right, I know it's Christmas morning. Over, eschatology means the study of the last days. And what we so often do is we say that what Jesus is bringing... What we long for him to bring is already true now, but that's simply not the case. You can look around the world. If God has brought peace internationally, then listen, we're selling a, we're selling a, a, a bunch of goods. It's a lie because you look around the world and it's not peaceful today. Ask the people, the Christians in Syria and the, the Christians in Palestine, whether they live in a world that is full of peace. It's not. And so what we've been celebrating in the Advent is we're celebrating the fact that when all we do, we look back to the first Advent, but we long for a second Advent, a day in which he will come, and the last days where he will bring the peace that we absolutely long for and we desperately need. So that's not exactly what the, what the angels are talking about here. It's not international peace, and it's not internal peace. So what is the peace that the angels are singing about? Well, the clue is in the actual the verse itself. It says this, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, some of you hear that, and immediately, if you grew up in the church, or frankly, if you just grew up in kind of Bible Belt American Christianity, or if you've simply even seen a Christmas card, you, look at, you listen to that translation, and you go, wait a second, that's not the way it's supposed to go. Your Christmas card read something like this, didn't it? Glory to God in the highest, and goodwill towards men. That was actually, that's the old King James Version translation of the scriptures, that was done 500 years ago, and the King James got it very, very wrong. Now, to be gracious to the King James guys, that was 500 years ago, and we've made some, some advances in our understanding of how to translate scriptures. We've made geogra- geographical advancements, uh, and we've discovered various old artifacts, and we've learned how to better translate in, uh, information and language into new languages. So the King James didn't quite get it right. That's okay. To, continue, to use the King James and trying to understand the Christmas story would be kind of like using, you know, a medical doctor using leeches and sharp rocks to do surgery. The translation is incorrect. That was unkind, wasn't it? That was mean. I'm sorry, KJV lovers. But what it actually says in the actual more modern translations that all scholars agree on is what it says here, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. What it is saying there, and the story of the Bible is this, is that there is ill will between us and God. 
There is ill will between us and God. And the peace that Jesus came to bring is peace between us and God. Not first and foremost, international peace. Not first and foremost, internal peace. But goodwill and favor and pleasure between us and God again. It says this in the hymn we're going to end our service with this morning. And hark the herald angels sing. It says it very well. Charles Wesley, again, I quoted him twice last night. He gets another pub this morning. He says this, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. The story of the Bible is that there has been a war. And we have made war against God in our sin since the fall of Adam and Eve. And that what we need is to be made peace, to be reconciled, and be made back into a right relationship with God. And so that's what God provides in the incarnation. It is a story of God's plan to bring us, make us reconciled with God. So that's the first thing that the angel's news tells us. But it also tells us how that's going to come about in a roundabout way. It says this in verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now it's interesting, what, how is this going to come about? How is this reconciliation between us and God going to happen? It's going to happen through a Savior. But the understanding, we have to understand the nature of the Savior to see how he's going to bring about this reconciliation. It is important to understand the incarnation and the nature of Christ to see how the reconciliation comes about. You see, Jesus, in the theology of of Christianity, from the very earliest theologians, as they came to understand, as they read the New Testament, that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man, and that if we are going to be saved, he had to be both. He had to be both. You see, if there are two warring parties and you want to develop peace terms, what do you do? You send a representative. You send a representative to make peace terms with the warring faction. And that is what we needed between us and God. Is that mankind needed a representative to go before us to God. Now here's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. It's this. Is that ever since Adam and Eve we have rejected God. And that mankind has made war against God. And in no matter there have been great men who have been risen up. There have been great families who have been risen up. There have been great nations that have been, that have been risen up. But none of them can be perfect representatives before God. Because what we need in order to bridge the gap between us and God, to make us right between us and God, is to cover over our sins, to cover all the slaughter we have done to defame God's name. We owe God a debt. And if you send a representative, somebody else who also owes God a debt, he cannot pay your debt for you. He cannot pay your debt for you. And so therefore, all of mankind, we have been longing for a representative, someone who would be perfect, who could actually represent us before God. But there's none who has come until this. Until this. See, what Jesus has done, what God has done, and trying to make peace and reconciliation between us and him, is he said, I will come down myself. But no mere man, no mere man in his sinfulness and his brokenness can actually rightly, can live perfectly. And so God had to come down and take on flesh himself. God cannot represent us if he's separate from us and simply God. God had to come in and become a man, take on flesh, become a part of humanity so that he could represent humanity. And so that's what he does in Jesus. He enters into our experience. 
He takes on our flesh and then lives a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He was no mere man. You see, a merely good man cannot pay your debts. It took a perfect man. It took a God man. And what it says in this text and what the angels say is such the good news is that the Lord God himself is coming down to take on flesh to be our representative. That's the beautiful truth of the incarnation. That this is the story of reconciliation, of us being made right with God. And here's the question, how does that happen? How does he go about doing that? If you're familiar with the Christian story, he goes about doing that by doing this. He lives a perfect life that you and I could not live. And then he, what, he, what he does is he goes to a cross and he pays the death that we deserve. You see, because of our war against God, we deserve death, a wrath against us. And yet he took that wrath upon himself so that we may be made right with God and so that we may have peace with God. The cost of your peace with God is that Jesus lost peace with God. That Jesus took on all the wrath that you and I deserve. So that, you know, there's this great passage that I say very often at the end of our services. It's called a benediction. It's a blessing. And it's called the Aaronic benediction. And the Aaronic benediction goes something like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That is to see the glory of his face and give you peace. And give you peace. The truth of the cross is this, is that Jesus got the exact opposite of the ironic benediction. Jesus had the Father's face turned away from him. Jesus got a curse. Jesus got war with God so that you and I would get peace with God. That's the story of Christmas. That we have a fear, but the good news is that God is coming to relieve that fear by his grace and his mercy through the incarnation of Christ to make us right in a right relationship with God once again. So that's what the text says. I'm going to close with one other thing. I want, you, I want to ask you this, and this is simply your response. And there's three things I would call you, three ways you should respond this morning. And the first is this, is you need to recognize your hostility towards God. The truth of the story of the Bible is that we have rejected God and we are hostile towards him. You and God have a problem. You and God have a problem. Recognize that you need peace with him. We think we need internal peace or political peace, the peace that you most need is you need God in all of his glory and all of his might not to be angry at you anymore. That's the peace that you desperately need. You have to acknowledge that there is separation between you and God. Have you made, you could ask this, if you, like as a pastor, I, I have sat at the bedside of some people who are about to die. And one of the classic, you, you almost think of a, of a chaplain going through the, a, a medical world ward of wounded soldiers asking them, have they made peace with God? I heard one story of a pastor who asked a man that in his church who was about to die, and the man said, I didn't know me and God had quarreled. Well, the truth is, is you've been quarreling with God your whole life. This is a question that has eternal consequences. Are you and God fighting? Are you still fighting with him? You may say, I don't have a beef with God, but that, listen, I, I don't think that's very true. Because the reality is, at least my experience has been, is that if you simply scratch underneath the surface at all with most people, is that our natural condition is not that we're in, in, ignorant of God and that we simply need some new information about him. It's not that we're ambivalent towards God and we need some motivation to be back in the right relationship with him. It's that we're angry with God and that we're hostile towards him. There's a place in the prophets where the, a prophet of God is sent to chastise the minors, many of the prophets in Jeremiah. And he says, there's these false prophets that are coming to the people of Israel and saying, there's peace, there's peace. 
and he says there's peace, they're saying there's peace, but there actually is no peace. Do not claim that you have peace with God when there is no peace between you and God. There's a hostility between you and him. You have to at least admit that. That's the beginning of reconciliation, to understand that you've offended him, that he has something against you. Colossians 1 says this, though you were alienated and hostile, and yet Jesus has reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless. That's a beautiful truth, holy and blameless. So the second thing you have to do in order to be made right, first you have to recognize your hostility. The second thing is you have to reject all your failed attempts to be made right with God. So the first thing is you've got to know you've been fighting. And the second, you've got to put aside all the failed attempts to make yourself right with God. Here's the, here's the, the classic way that religion tells you to be made with right with God. It's, it's said well in one of our Santa songs, right? You better not shout. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Because God is making his list. He's checking it twice, and he knows who's naughty or nice. That's what religion tells you. That's how you be made right with God, is you just you get on the, on the nice list. And if you've been nice, then you get peace with God. But that's silliness. Yeah, it's interesting. My kids, well, here's, here's something. I don't think you've, as a parent you've ever experienced this, where one kid, you walk in the room, and one kid is doing this to another kid. And then suddenly the child realizes you're there and suddenly straightens up and is like patting the kid on the head. And you're going, I've seen through this. The patting the kid on the head doesn't make make up for the fact that you just beat them senseless. And the same way that you're suddenly patting God and going, yes, good God, you're so great to me, does not make up for the fact for all the times and the places in which you have said you've shaken your fist at him and said, I want you to have nothing to do with my life. We don't, here's the beautiful truth though, is that we don't make peace with God. That's what, that's what religion says. Religion says we make peace with God. Christianity says God makes peace with you. Christianity says that God makes all the steps. He pursues you. He sends his son to get you. Angels brought good news. News. You know what you do with news? Do you make the news? No. News is brought to you and you simply respond to the good news. And so the news is this, is that there is, a, there is one who has come to make peace between you and God. The average person in a Christian church this morning believes in religion and is trying very hard to be good and hoping that they can be good enough for God to have favor upon them, for God to be pleased with them. That is a, that is a false narrative. And there is no way that we can be made right with God with a few good deeds. It doesn't work that way. We desperately need God to pursue us, to make peace with us, to do everything that is necessary for us to have peace with him. And do you understand the guarantee that he gives us? And the passage just read in Colossians 1.21, I'll read it again. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to do what? To present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. And actually goes on literally to say he will present you as perfect in his sight. Perfect in his sight. The problem with religion is you may feel peace today because you've had a good day. And tomorrow you may really screw up. And suddenly you don't feel like there's any peace between you and God. But the truth of God's peace that he brings is that he has ended the hostility between us and God entirely and permanently. And in fact, not only that, but he's made you perfect in God's sight. So that when he sees you, he sees the beautiful works of Jesus. You can't get more than blemishlessness. Blemishless means you're perfect. There's no spot or wrinkle on you. And that's the peace that God brings. 
That in God's sight, that's how he sees you. And so the third thing, third response that I would call you to have is not only recognize your hostility and reject failed attempts to be made right with God, but simply this, recognize, receive, and rest on the one who has made you right with God. If you want to be completely forgiven, if you want to lay down self-justification and your own kind of self-made salvation, you've got to stop trying to save yourself and you've got to simply turn to the one who has saved you. It's interesting, it says in that passage that there is one, it says peace to the, one who, the ones whose God is pleased with. Well, it's interesting, if you look around the go, room and you go, who is God pleased with? And you go, well, the one who's perfect. And you go, uh-oh, that's none of us. And so the story of the Bible is that God has provided one who he is perfectly pleased with. And if you want God to be perfectly pleased with you, you simply receive the one in whom God is perfectly pleased, the one who did live the perfect and righteous life. What you need is you need a covering. You see, what the shepherds fear, see and experience when they see the glory of God is they say, we need to be covered. This is what Adam and Eve experience when the glory of God comes into the garden. They sin, so what do they do? They cover themselves up. What does Moses do? God says, yes, I'll show you my glory, but only the shadow of my glory. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. And what the shepherds need is they need a covering as well. The covering of the perfect work of Jesus. You know, I'm told, I don't know if this is still the case anymore, but it, I think it used to be the case, that if you were to drive along in, in Scotland and look at the various sheep running along the hillsides in Scotland, every once in a while you'd see this bizarre scene of a sheep wearing a fleece. Some of you are getting a fleece today. But they actually say they have another sheep's skin upon them. And the reason why this is the case is because that child, that, that little lamb, had lost its mother. And no other mother would actually take on that child. They would smell that it's not theirs. There would be no peace between that mo- any other mother and that child, that little lamb. And so what do the shepherds do? They take the, the, the fleece of a lamb that has died, and they place that upon the little lamb so that it can be received by the mother. This is what you and I need. We needed God to cover us, to cover us with a fleece, the fleece of Jesus' righteousness so that you and I could be made right with God, so that we may be received by God and called to him and be called sons and daughters of the king. This is what we need, and this is what Christmas is all about. One last question, and we'll close. Do you have peace with God? Let me ask you this. Why in the world, if you know you could have peace with God today, maybe not internal peace, or maybe just the beginning of the struggle, and you know maybe not international peace, obviously, but if you could have peace with God today, why would you live another day on this earth and not know for certain that you and God are good? The only way to know that is to plead the Son. Is to say, God, don't look at me. Look at your perfect Son who has covered me with his righteousness. There is nothing I have done that can make myself right with you. Only what your your Son has done for me. And in that way, you have peace with God. Not just peace for today and not just peace for tomorrow, but peace eternally. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has sent your Son that you're a God who, in your glory and the beauty of your character and the essence of who you are, so longed to be in relationship with us that even though we were a people who were at war against you, 
who are fighting against you, who are running away from you as fast as we possibly could, who are cursing your name, that, Lord, you came after us. And that you didn't just call us, but, Lord, you did everything that was necessary for our salvation. You did everything that was necessary to make us right with you. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not be a people who leave this place today, whether it be for the, hundred, for the first time or for the thousandth time, to say and look up and say, God, I plead the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And gracious God, when you look upon me, would you see Jesus? God, would we know the peace that you have given us in Christ, that we trust in him and him alone for our salvation. We ask this in the perfect name of your son who gives us that peace. Amen.